please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. This is the very Word of God. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagnerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around them, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who? are my mother and my brothers. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, 
Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, as we have this absolute reorientation of our focus by the Lord Jesus from these, this text, we want to recognize that you are the high and holy God and you have gathered a new people together, a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. We would not be gathered together for any political program or any uh, similarity of ethnicity or any similarity of class or sociology, but you have bound us together by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the privilege of knowing that our sins are forgiven when we believe Jesus Christ, when we trust in him. I pray for those who do not know Christ this morning, whether here present in this building or watching online, I pray that there would be a deep conviction of their sins, that they would own their sins before you, that they would turn from their sin, and that they would flee to Jesus Christ for refuge, the only refuge this world can ever know. Father, we ask that you would grant repentance across this land. We pray for those leaders in government, in various even leaders of companies and leaders in society of various institutions. We pray for leaders in their homes. We pray that there would be a great repentance across this land, that there would be a turning from sin, from all the schemes of Satan, and that there would be a fleeing to Jesus Christ. And we know if that happened, we would give you all the glory. Lord, as we have welcomed new members into the church, as we have even talked about the, the prospect of having elders go through, or potential elders, I should say, go through a candidacy, we ask, Lord, that you would protect our church from the schemes of the enemy. But we thank you, Lord, that you're building your church and building even this local church, and we trust you to protect us and preserve us. We thank you that your word does that, it is the word of the apostles, the apostles appointed by Jesus Christ himself. So, Holy Father, now, according to your word, let your power be known through your word, the word of Jesus Christ. Do it now, we pray, for we ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. There are three things which are very important in this passage, and all of them have to do with the guaranteed, tested, inevitable triumph of the church and to all those who belong to Jesus Christ as believers. There is a foundation to the church. There's certainly resistance and opposition and obstacles to that triumph. But there is a guarantee of the triumph. And I think this is extremely relevant to read this in Mark chapter 3 because I believe that reports of the church's death have been greatly exaggerated. 
Now, you get these headlines all the time, don't you, about the decline in Christianity in Canada. Of course, when I see these articles and these studies about the decline of Christianity, I always have to ask the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian in their definition, and what is a Christian in the Bible's definition? I've taken on using now, however, the metric that Pastor Josh has come up with, as he has noted, you can say, and I, I, I agree, that there's maybe about 5,000 people in the city of Calgary that are in well-discipled churches. And I think that's a good, good way of describing it. Well-discipled churches. 5,000 people. It's not saying there's, there might be more Christians than that, but there are only 5,000 people that are in well-discipled churches in a city of, what are we, 1.3 million? And that's not including surrounding area. That's 0.0038%. Now, when you look at missions, in missionary studies, there's a, a thing called the Unreached People's Directory, that was distributed at the 1974 Lausanne Congress, and it said, quote, a people group is unreached when less than 20% of the population of that group is part of the Christian community. So those are statistics. But to this realistic picture, and I think however you want to look at the statistics, the, the true Christian confession in this city is very small, but we still have to ask the question, what is a Christian? And we can reject all the sociological definitions. We can find that there are many who are so-called Christians who have never been converted. They don't believe in the true Christ. They, they believe in a false run, by contrast. They, they don't believe in the gospel savingly. They believe in a different religious system, even if they go to church. And they have not repented in order to follow Jesus Christ exclusively. And so we have to look at what is a Christian. And that's what we're doing this morning as we're bringing members in. And we're also going to have baptism testimonies and celebrate baptism. Because we're going to hear testimonies of those who believe in the gospel who have repented of their sins, who are following the true Christ, who are obediently seeking to be baptized as their body's testimony to their heart's fidelity to Christ. So according to Jesus' own terms, the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few, Matthew 7, 14. Nevertheless, what we're doing today in this church this morning is we're rejoicing that there are those who have found it because they were lost and they were first found by Jesus Christ. Now, since the days of the apostles, disciples, those who believe in Jesus Christ, have confessed one Lord, one faith, one baptism, Ephesians 4, 5. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, he said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The rock's not the first pope, but is the confession of faith which the apostle declared. 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so apostolic faith has been the foundation of the church, the true church, the church down to our day, the the church which will prevail, the church that may appear small like a mustard seed now, but will grow into a vast tree. The church that looks weak and frail now, it looks weak and frail in this city by some measures, but it's actually rejoicing in sorrow. It is moving from one degree of glory to another on its suffering way even to heaven. That is what is happening. So to be honest, when I see these articles and these surveys, I don't really care, to be honest. I just, they, they just aren't a great metric because they don't really know what's going on. The church will triumph beyond the grave. The church will triumph beyond the grave. As the Southern Bluegrass hymn says, if you have friends in glory land who've left because of pain, thank God up there, they'll die no more. They'll suffer not again. They'll suffer not again. That is the triumph of the church. It is the triumph. It is the success. It is the victory. It is the vindication. And it has been won by the Son of God whom the unclean spirits couldn't help but recognize. But the foundation of this triumph is laid in the selected apostles of Jesus Christ. Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. But in architectural terms, the foundation is the group of selected apostles. As Paul summed this up in Ephesians 2.20, he said the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is the church triumphant. It, is, it actually starts with the decision of Jesus Christ himself. He's laying the foundation of triumph in the face of resistance to that triumph, but with the guarantee of triumph. And if you want to follow along, that's essentially my outline, is the foundation, the resistance, and the guarantee of triumph. So this is if you've been beat down this week or you're discouraged, you're thinking, oh yeah, it's all going down the tubes, just remember, the church is triumphant. The church will endure. It is guaranteed. But there's foundations that were laid for this triumph. Now Jesus, as we see in his ministry in chapter 3, and we've been seeing, he was popular. How would he then lay the foundations for this new people of God that wouldn't just pass, pass away just like all fads do? You know, all popularity passes like fads. Um, you know, who can remember what a Walkman is? You're laughing because you don't know what it is. Or ColecoVision. See, you got to be Commodore 64. 
See, 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 it starts to, there's fewer laughs because fewer people know what I'm talking about because they're old. (laughs) My kids, my boys, have never known a world without the iPhone. Just think about that. But, But how is it that the Church of Jesus Christ had a foundation laid that was designed to last not for five years or ten years or twenty years or a hundred years or a thousand years, but actually to last for eternity. What kind of foundation did he lay? Well, it says there in verse 13, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast demons. Now notice first, in laying the foundations for this triumph, Jesus positioned himself as God speaking to Israel at Mount Sinai. Just as the the Lord God established twelve tribes, God the Son incarnate established 12 apostles. Now what qualified these 12? Was it that they were very skillful? Were they, what's the term we use today? Were they influencers? Got to get your influencers? No. Was it because they were so tough and strong? No. The only qualification is that they were those whom he desired. They were those whom he desired. Jesus had the freedom to do what he wanted. That's it. He had the rights and entitlements of God. As Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens He does all that He pleases. He does all that He pleases. He's not constrained. He's not constricted. He's not contingent. He does all that He pleases. And when we see Jesus, we see that God has come down adding to himself humanity, and he chooses these apostles by his own enjoyment and happiness and according to his own will. Their task, he says in verse 15, is to preach and to cast out demons. The first is to give the authorized message. The second is the authorized power. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, They could have done nothing without that authority. It was not their own authority. It was the authority they had derived and received from Him. They did not speak as ordinary men. They spoke as apostles. So this, this is the foundation for the triumph of the church It is then this foundation of authority. The apostles had the authority to speak and write God's perfect word. Their miracles then, 
vindicated that authority. And that's kind of how it works. Now consider, Joseph Smith of the Mormons in 1823, or Muhammad of Islam in 610, or Peter Wagner's 1994 labeling of what's called the New Apostolic Reformation, or uh, even uh, Apostle Suleiman of Nigeria today, and they've got church plants here in Calgary. All of these so-called apostles wish to write God's Word or rewrite it. So, they have to then manufacture false miracles in order to validate their revisionism. So you've got the Book of Mormon, and you've got the Quran, and you've got the speculations and the exaggerations of many of these modern-day apostles, so-called. And all of them fail. All of them fail. They fail to recognize that the true apostles laid a foundation once and for all time, not to be repeated, not to be revised. So if you hear anybody saying that they're an apostle, or they're going to go to a church where there's an apostle, or some guy puts apostle on his business card, they're a false apostle and run away. Don't give them any money. Don't go to their church. Stay away. That's Paul, true apostle, born out of time, but a true apostle said in 1 Corinthians 3.10, he said, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus was doing on that mountain. He's laying a foundation for the church triumphant. The thing is, when you look at the list, and you see the list there in chapter 3, you see this list of these guys in verses 13 through 19. You look at the list and you think, of all the people he could have chose, he chose these guys? Uh, I guess if we looked out at this group here and you looked at me, and you think, of all the people God could have chosen, he chose these people? Yeah, go ahead and look at each other. Yeah, it's quite surprising. I'm looking at you. You're looking at me. We're, it's all a great surprise. Very diverse men. Nicknames like Sons of Thunder. You got the Zealot. You got the Sicarius, the Assassin. You got these sunburnt fishermen. You, you know, you, you got the greedy paper pusher. You know, the, these are not the good and the great that he chose. And yet these men were not chosen for their power or their cleverness. Later on in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, Luke records how the apostles were perceived when they, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, that's the important thing. 
Jesus called them and appointed them, and they had been with him. Now, another thing to notice in this list, and I, it's, I have to mention it in this current climate, they are all men. They're all men. It is the apostolic leadership of men. Now, does this mean that the dignity of men is greater than the dignity of women? Well, no. But it does mean that from the order of creation, man first, woman created from man, that there was an order established by God, and the apostles were men as the first foundation layer of the church. And why is that? Because it was according to Jesus' good pleasure. Now, these men were not infallible in themselves. In fact, you did have an apostle who ended up betraying Jesus, of course. You have, later on, you've got one apostle confronting another apostle about sin in Galatia. When they wrote Scripture, they were, nevertheless, overseen by God in such a way that what they wrote was without error. The apostolic scriptures, that's what this is. The New Testament is the apostolic scriptures, you could call them. They are inerrant, is the $50 theological word. They are inerrant. That is, they are without error in the originals. As 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is then the nature of this inspiration that produces then a scripture without error. This is foundational. Now, these apostles, so, so they're empowered, they're authorized writers of scripture, and their ministry is laying the foundation for the church through the ages. So that's why we're not trying to make up church every, every week. We're not trying to come up with a new way of doing church, a new way of being a Christian. No, there isn't a new way. If there was a new way, you'd be laying a new foundation. And if somebody writes a book about being a new kind of Christian, you know it's already false because there is no new kind of Christian or new kind of church. There's only the church, and there's only being a Christian, and it is one foundation. We, have to, we, we must see, most of all, however, that it was Christ's pleasure that laid the foundation for this triumphant church. As the hymn says, From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. That's what he came for. He came for the church. And he's laying this foundation so that it endures. One foundation, one church for eternity, not multiple foundations. That's the first thing we've got to see is this. Foundation was laid. It's the foundation of the triumph. But secondly, and this is a little bit, I'm taking passages not necessarily in their narrative order, but there are obstacles to this triumph. And, and, and many obstacles. There's obstacles back then. There's obstacles now. There's obstacles that we have here in this passage 
beginning with the crowds. The popularity, the, the crowds were an obstacle. Verse 9, for example, in their desire for relief, they actually would have crushed the reliever. <laughs> you know, you, you hear about people being trampled in these mobs. Here, just imagine, imagine how hopeless it would be for us all if the Messiah had been crushed by the crowd rather than by the cross. If, if, imagine, if he would have died without making atonement, dying pointlessly. It, it, it reminds us how precious is Jesus' endurance in overcoming these obstacles so that he could die an atoning death. So there's the obstacle of the crowds. There, there was the obstacle of his own family. Some of us were talking about it this morning. They're the family. You know, maybe they think, you know, they thought about Jesus the way your family thinks about you. They thought Jesus was crazy. Verse 21. They said, he is out of his mind. Anybody ever tell you that? That, you know, Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner. You're crazy, man. You're crazy for believing the Bible. You're crazy for going to that church. You're crazy for following this stuff. Sometimes the greatest obstacle to your faith is your family. But see, Jesus was doing something new. He's laying a new foundation, and so he's establishing a new family. What's the new family? He says, here, here are my mother and my brothers, verse 35, for whoever does the will of of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's not denying the biological family. It's not denying the creation order established. But there is now this new relationship that Jesus established. Now, despite opposition from our families, as Jesus experienced, he has created then this new family for us to belong to, and we are, we are born into it. We are born from above. We are born again into this new family. That's what we're celebrating in the baptisms. We're celebrating those who have been born from above, born again, and therefore born into a new family. We still all have our biological families, but this is a new family we're born into. Our natural families may oppose us, but the church will be triumphant. And our hope then, you know, you think, what's our hope then in relation to all of our extended family? Well, our hope is that our families will give up the protest. That they'll actually join in Christ's victory parade. That's what we want. And maybe, maybe you are the first and only person in your family to be welcomed into Christ's triumph. Well, don't, don't feel lonely for being first. Lead the way. Lead the way. Lead the way and, and love your lost loved ones for Jesus' sake with the hope that they would join you. How many people have 
though foolishly said, well, no, I don't, I don't want to follow Christ because I don't want to leave my family behind. When what you need to be doing is, yes, I want to follow Christ so I can blaze the trail so they can follow him too. How many of you have come to faith in Christ, maybe later in life, and you're trying to then raise a family with Christian instruction and in that way blaze the trail so that your children would follow Jesus Christ? That's what it's all about. So there can be that kind of opposition, though, from our natural families. Now, the great opposition which exists in verse 23 to 27, is that great enemy, Satan himself. And I'm just going to leave off talking about him for a minute and address, because I'm going to get into talking about him in a little bit more detail, but, but there's something that's actually even a more pressing personal possibility, and it's the obstacle that may reside in the soul who commits what Jesus calls the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's in verses 28 to 30. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is sometimes called the unforgivable sin because Jesus says that this sin never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can be seen as at least what Augustine concluded. Namely, that if you die, if a person dies without repenting of their sins, then they die unrepentant and therefore not forgiven. So at the very least, that's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is is final death in unrepentance. And I think that's, that's more where I've always defaulted. But as I've studied this, you know, I mean, it's true. If, if you die unrepentant, you're not, you're not forgiven forever. There's no second chance. There's no do-over in purgatory. That's all false. There's no second chance after you die. So it is correct in the sense that right now is your second chance, actually. Right, right now is your second chance. Not when you die. Right now. You've got the opportunity to turn and believe the gospel right now. But in studying this, I, I don't think Augustine's conclusion goes far enough. The issue is that the scribes, look in verse 22, the scribes were attributing to Satan, Beelzebub, They're attributing to Satan the Holy Spirit's power by which Jesus was expelling demons. It's very specific. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by the scribes is not ignorance. It's not ignorance. That's not, well, I didn't know. It is a calculated, thoughtful, blatant attribution of the Holy Spirit's work And you're saying, that is Satan. It is saying that Jesus' work is satanic. That's a very dark thing. 
it's interesting to compare, as Dennis Johnson, a theologian, notes, that Paul could say, 1 Timothy 1.13, though once he was a blasphemer, he acted ignorantly in unbelief. So he was a blasphemer too, but he acted ignorantly in unbelief. His ignorance didn't excuse him, Johnson says, but it left his heart permeable to the Spirit's invasion. Johnson says further, Of the two truths we may be sure, none who commits this unforgivable, un, none who commits this unforgivable sin will ever trust in Christ to receive forgiveness found in him. And no one who flees to the crucified and risen Son of Man has committed that heinous slander of the Spirit, nor will the Savior, nor will the Savior turn away anyone who turns to Him. Okay? So when some of you, with a tender conscience, you read these passages, unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and you think, well, you know, I actually, you know, I was kind of a little bit angry with God the other day, and so I think I've committed the unforgivable sin, or I've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. And, and it's just not the case. It's not the case. It is, see, the thing is, the Christian believer who sins, when they sin, they are stung by that sin, and then they, they see it as sin, and they turn from it. The non-Christian, very often, their sin is such that they're actually, as Romans says, they're suppressing the truth in unbelief. They're just, they know it's true. They're just suppressing it in unbelief. They just don't want to admit it, but it, they know it's true. That's why you have great confidence when you share the gospel with anybody out there. You, they know it's true. They just want to you know, heap on as many stories and narratives to act as if it isn't. But that's different than someone who is calculating and saying, yes, there is a satanic force in the world and Jesus is the one wielding it. Jesus is the satanic one. That's very different. I must say, in view of all that, that sometimes in our culture, I can... I can I, I, this is just my perception, but it can feel like some people, they're not just acting ignorantly in unbelief, but they are viewing Christ's work as satanic in our culture. And if so, they would be blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, and that terrible, terrible thing would show that they're actually under God's judgment in such a way that they're lost and, in a sense, irredeemable. However, I don't care who it is. I don't care what you've said and what you've done. If you look to Christ and you repent of your sins and you believe in Him, Christ will receive you and you will be saved. There is nothing that you have done. There's nothing so bad that Jesus can't forgive you. What we're talking about with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is basically a description after the fact. How do you categorize such a person? But if you're here and you're debating, well, I don't know. Is Jesus going to take me? He can't take people like me. We're going, to have, we're going to have baptism testimonies of two sinners. Sinners in need of a Savior. And all that they came to Him to was not their righteousness, but just their sin. And they ask forgiveness for their sins, and He forgives sins. 
He forgives freely. Thankfully, the offer of the good news is for us. For us, whom Isaiah said, all we like what? Like sheep have done what? Gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's our hope. Who knew this Savior could be so good? And that's why why you're here today. You're here to find out about the good news you never knew. Or or the good news you've forgotten. Or the good news that your sin had blinded you to. Or the good news you didn't even know that you needed. And the only way that you can know and believe the good news is because Jesus has made it possible for you to believe. Which brings me to my third point, which is the guarantee of triumph. So, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to do binding of Satan. I'm going to cram all this in the same sermon. I hope you're following along. Uh, It's been a journey already. But the guarantee of triumph. The binding of the strong man in verses 22 to 30. Look at there, that, that little, little story, little image. The binding of the strong man is one of the most important truths which Christians must understand in order to be clear about the positive hope of the church and the guarantee of victory which we personally possess. You need to know this one, and my guess is this is one that you're not so familiar with. Because I know how most Christians talk and the way most Christians act. Verse 24, now verse 24, it's used by coaches and politicians as a call to unity. You know, they say, a kingdom divided against itself shall not stand. You know, it's a nice slogan. It comes from the Bible, it comes from Jesus. But what's more striking in this passage is that Jesus claims that he is limiting Satan's power. Get that clear. Jesus is limiting Satan's power. Verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now just stop for a second. Doesn't it seem really weird that Jesus is using the analogy of a violent home invasion where Jesus is the burglar? That's probably why you're not familiar with this one because you're like, oh, I don't know about this one. I don't know. I'm not sure about this one. But did you catch that? In this one, Satan, especially in our parlance today, Satan is the victim. He's no victim. Jesus is showing, and it's just an analogy, he's showing how the church is guaranteed to triumph. It is because he has bound Satan. And more than that, He has done this binding of Satan in order to capture captives. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, quoting 
from Psalm 68, verse 18, says, He led captivity captive. This is what Jesus has done. See, the binding of Satan by Jesus enables him to rescue and to redeem and to deliver and to save the captives of Satan. Now, we, nobody likes to talk like this. Nobody likes to talk about people out in the world. It's not very winsome. But the truth is that everybody who is not in Christ is captive to Satan. They're captives of Satan. They belong to, he's captured them. They're slaves of Satan. I don't have time to go through even Jesus referring to people in that way. And so they're captive. But what Jesus comes to do is to save and deliver the captives. So he steals the captives from the strong man. How does he steal them? He's got to tie up the strong man first. Prior to Jesus coming, so think about this, prior to Jesus coming, all faith and hope in this deliverance was only anticipated. It was only only longed for in the Messiah. But Jesus arrived in his earthly ministry and he did this kind of a jujitsu move at the cross and he took Satan's desperate attack and he flipped it. Jesus flipped the horror of the cross into the hope of Easter morning. That's what he did. He flipped it. And so the binding of Satan is critical for us to understand. Now, the question is, now because this is what you're wondering about, does this mean that we don't have to worry about Satan? And that's actually how a lot of people live. They act like, oh, we don't have to worry about him. Well, no, we do have to be, consider the threat of Satan's work. But I would say this, Satan, Satan's like, like a mafia boss who sits in jail, and he's able to direct his hitmen and all of his organization from the inside. That's how he, that's what it's like. So there is a lot of damage in the world that Satan can do. But he can't stop Jesus saving a sinner. He can't. Because he's, he's been bound up in a way that was not true before Jesus' coming. Now, if I haven't got your attention before now, I'm really going to get it because I'm going to suggest that Mark 3 and the binding of Satan gives us a key to understanding the millennium in Revelation 20. And you're just like, wow, this guy's really out on a limb. Do you know how Revelation 20, what it says about the millennium? It says, Revelation 20, verse 2, He seized, who? The dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, just in case you didn't know who he's talking about. Mention whatever name he's ever had. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him. How long? For a thousand years. 
You're saying, well, yeah, but that's all in the future. Well, is it? That's, the, that's, that's, your, that's your homework, actually. You can... And that's why I'm undermining a little bit, is the possibility that the millennium is already and not yet. The point is, is that Mark 3 tells us that what, that, that binding in Revelation, in Revelation 20 is happening with Jesus in his ministry as he's casting out demons and people are getting saved right then, not completely in the future, but in the ministry that Jesus inaugurated, and then he has the foundation laid of those apostles, and they're going to preach, and they're going to cast out demons too. Satan's bound. Let's cast out demons. This guarantees triumph. Even Revelation 20, verse 3 continues. Verse 3. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. You see, there is now the opportunity for the nations no longer to be deceived because the gospel can go out through through the world and people can be saved. Now, you can disagree with this suggestion about the millennium, but you cannot ignore the fact that the Apostles' foundation is vindicated in the triumph of the last day. Even Revelation 18.20, speaking about the judgment on Babylon, says, Rejoice over her. It's speaking about Babylon. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given for you, God has given judgment for you against her. So the foundation was laid, the church is triumphant to the end, even being given judgment over Babylon and that Babylon world system. Well, there's been a lot here, but I hope that you've been challenged. And just by way of application, to bring it to a close, two things. First, very practically, beware of false apostles. Beware of false apostles. There's the false, false apostle of your own intuition. It's happened a lot. I would say there's a threat of it even in this church as people you know, want to debate about theological topics and they're going based purely on their intuition rather than what does the word of the apostles say. The false apostle of intuition is, is deadly to follow. There's, of course, the false apostle of Rome. Always a threat. Not just this pope, but the papacy There's a reason why the Reformers viewed the papacy as the Antichrist. That that architecture is more, maybe it's the wrong metaphor, but much more adaptable, like the Borg or like a chameleon. And so you must watch out even for the false apostle of Rome. I'd also say you need to be watching for the false apostles of the world. Our, Our culture is changing so rapidly that there are all of these messengers 
who are offering to you, just like the book of Revelation indicates, offering you appealing but false messages accompanied by false miracles. Anybody look at chat GPT? You know, if you don't know what that is, you know, the artificial intelligence stuff. All of a sudden, these false miracles, I'm not saying you can't use it. I'm just saying, beware. So we need to be on guard against false foundations, false apostles. But the other more positive encouragement from all of this that we're going to celebrate in these testimonies in a minute is simply this, to the victors belong the spoils. And some of us don't act like we're victors in Christ. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He says in Mark, uh, Matthew 19.28, He says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And it's amazing. You're thinking, well, what about all this church stuff? Is this really the right path? Well, and i got to ask, whose names are written on the base of the walls of this spectacular new Jerusalem, that spectacular celestial city? We're told in Revelation 21.4, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This is where we're going. The triumph is guaranteed, but we will always follow the Lamb and we will always stay aligned with and build upon the foundation of the apostles, come what may. And baptism is an oath of allegiance in alignment with the desires and the will of the king who guarantees the victory. That's what it is. And as the old southern hymn said, we'll need no sun in glory land. The moon and stars won't shine for Christ himself is light up there. He reigns in love divine. Let's pray together. Holy God, I ask that you would help us to be realigned once again according to the foundation of the apostles and prophets and that we would not be afraid of Satan but know that Jesus has bound Satan and delivers captivity captive. May we be among those captives to Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing How Firm a Foundation. Let's celebrate this foundation together. Please rise.